Hi everyone, welcome back. It's April 17th, 2017, and we're recording for episode 20. And we have with us Farce Value, and we'll call him Farce, and we've got Sacred Cow Slayer from the forum, and we'll call him Ace. And um, I'm your host, Hoi Poloi. Kay is busy gardening this time, so we don't really have her as a co-host, but I think we've got some really cool people in the call today. So let's get started. Ace, how did you learn about Clues Forum, and, and why did you join and all that? To make it brief, I had spent a few years with no television. My, my kids were really young, and I just thought, this is total garbage, and I don't want my kids growing up in front of it. So I turned it off for a few years. I don't know. I think it was in 2013 or so. I was over at my parents' house, and they had the news on, and I was like, wow, this is totally plastic. And I and it was after the Boston bombing, and I started looking at it, and before I knew it, I was looking, I was looking at the Sandy Hook materials, but there was so much disinfo popping up, satanic rituals and children in closets and stuff like that. And I thought, well, this is obviously some sort of disinfo campaign. And this is before I really knew anything about disinfo campaign. Uh, so, yeah, what would you say is a disinfo campaign now? And and All right. So uh, whenever they made it all scary, like, OK, so all these kids, they were really all killed. But it wasn't quite like the media told us. Uh, what really happened was they were killed as some sort of satanic uh, ritual sacrifice and, uh, you know, stuffed in, a, in closets or something. They made it to sound even, you know, more horrifying than the, the mainstream media's ridiculous, horrifying story, which I thought was sketchy to begin with. But mind you, I hadn't spent much time paying attention to it. So for me... It was like somebody has a reason to tell a more horrifying story. And how were you getting this story? This was through the rate through the radio or some conspiracy show or one of my colleagues had mentioned uh, something about how the things about Sandy Hook weren't setting right with him. And so I did go on YouTube and I started looking. And you know how that is, you just if somebody just goes onto YouTube, they're gonna go to the usual suspects. Yeah. <laughs> so I quickly realized that there was a whole bunch of stuff. And so I went and did a Google search and I don't know what the Google search was, but it ended up leading me to the uh, Elizabeth Wanio clues forum page somehow and showed her the face. And it was about nine 11 uh, victims. And when I saw that, I thought, well, that's, that's ridiculous. And so I started looking at, okay, who were the 9-11 victims? Are you talking about that image that Simon made where we, we show how Elizabeth Wino was um, sort of cloned in Photoshop? And then, like, there's a, a picture of her, and then there's an exact same picture with a totally different background and things like yeah. that? Yeah, but there was – there's that one, and then there's also the one where – it does appear that they used the same template to make one of the big sims in the Virginia Tech shooting in 2006. Wow, uh, great. I'm trying to remember her name, Rachel something. It looked like they used the same template. Yeah, it's almost like they've been using this technology for a while. That's one of our conundrums is that 9-11 kind of exposed for us, oh, like they've just been making these fake victims. It's like a technology and, and we hadn't noticed it, you know, until then. 
but but the idea that 9-11 had been completely fabricated, it really, really cut pretty hard against my ideology and my just political grain at the time. And so just on an intellectual level, I thought, well, if this was the case, I should be able to refute it pretty quickly and easily. So I did set about to try and establish real victims and... I'll be damned I couldn't even come close. Yeah, that was actually my response, too. That's why I did the Vixen Report, because someone was posting at 9-11 Movement that they doubted the companies in the towers. And I said, oh, well, that should be easy to refute. They had, like, tens of thousands of employees, right? So I started looking up the companies and the alleged employees and finding just the most absurd so-called evidences for for these people's existence. And I'm thinking, like... This doesn't seem like people. This seems like characters in, you know, the like background characters in a movie. And then I realized, oh yeah, maybe that's all it is. That's all they, right. they were meant to be. Right. Can I interrupt you guys for a second here? With yeah. A, so I'm I'm curious about both of you having the mindset, I guess, that would cause you to look at this sort of probably a, a, a disturbing type of realization, say, with the capacity to have the objectivity to say, well, I'm going to try to refute this, as opposed to object, uh, refuting it out of hand, right, or, or just dismissing it the way I, I, I think most people have a tendency to, They, it, it's a reaction is like, well, this makes me very uncomfortable, so I am going to reject this, I'm not going to look at it any further, but you guys were like, well, let me see if I can prove to myself that this is as ridiculous as it seems. What makes me and uh, Hoy different than what the, uh, the other people? I, I don't know the answer to that. I, it seems to me that there are, for whatever reason, there are some people that are willing to challenge even their own most deeply held uh, beliefs or their own sense of understanding um, and then there's just some people that flat out refuse to do it because it's just too painful mentally or they're just too lazy. Or uh, the other easy explanation, I suppose, for a lot of people is they would rather be ignorant along with everybody else than be than uh, have some knowledge and be different because being different is too painful socially for some people. That's a good answer. Mine was going to be something like I remember the time. It's kind of like this. I, I felt like I had been doing some research on weird things. I had been on the other side of that argument where I was refuting anything that wasn't mainstream or, or it was too weird. And then when I found that there were some weird things I was curious about, I found one of the arguments that was strongest was, well, kind of like you said, Farce, where um, you instead of rejecting it out of hand – you you actually you know rejected it with a little bit of research and i found that a lot of the the television arguments were kind of like well here's this tiny little bit of research and that was more than anyone was willing to do so i thought if you do a lot of research you're you're likely to refute tons of things but i just found that the more research i did it was like running your hand through vapor it just wasn't there was nothing there and then right. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. This is something that, that nobody has probed properly. Right. And and all the other uh, sort of um, 
I don't know, arguments or criticisms or manufactured, contrived uh, arguments over 9-11, they all, they all dodged the premise conveniently because it reinforces the premise of the story, which is that planes hit the towers and all these people died. So looking back at it, it's pretty obvious to see like the Alex Jones role in it and to see how the pro-war, anti-war, whatever. But the idea was to protect the essential premise of the story. And once you go asking those kinds of fundamental questions, you've taken yourself off the playing field and off the playing field is exactly where they do not want us. They don't really, in my opinion, they don't care whether you're on the right or the left, as long as you're inside the boundaries. Right. But if you refuse to play, then it's a bit like you're questioning the whole game. And that is definitely a more powerful attitude. <laughs> questioning the game is not permissible. It seems like the, the queen bee or whatever it would be that needs the most protecting is that the, they want the perception that when the, cameras are rolling and the banner at the bottom of the television screen says live that that's an actual factual uh, circumstance that they're uh, right. recording objective facts and there may be other backstories it could be cia mafia mossad involvement and all these other conspiracy candy you might want to call it but the thing that can't be challenged is the fact that once the media is on site and the cameras are rolling that that's actually happening as opposed yeah. to it being a stagecrafted uh, yeah. production. Yeah, it could be yeah. those gangs, and it could also just be producers, you know, evil producers. <laughs> like, there's so many cultures that we don't, uh, that, that remain hidden, it seems. And it's not because there's some conspiracy needed, it's because people don't have curiosity enough, or or maybe, maybe, as Ace said, bravery enough to kind of, just look and wait, what are these hidden groups? And do they, you know, we have this belief that maybe if they're hidden, they're less powerful. There's something about the unknown that makes things more scary in some ways, but I don't know. It's like, well, it would it would have been exposed. You know, people have this thought like, oh, if that were a real phenomenon, I would have heard about it. The idea that whenever, yeah, absolutely, whenever there's a banner on the screen and there's somebody talking, the idea is... That is capturing what's going on. Now go argue about it on this side and this side. But don't you dare question the fundamental premise of this thing, because if you do, then you're crazy. So why did you join Clues Forum when you found out that we were looking at the same kind of things you were looking at? I didn't send an email to even ask to join until I was uh, satisfied that I really wanted to join, and and I had an inkling that maybe I could contribute, or I wasn't even sure if I could. But at first, I wasn't really sure about the 9-11 victims, but I read the victim report. I went through the memorial threads, uh, so many of those on the locked one and the one that's unlocked, and then the SimCity thread. I read through all that stuff over a period of weeks, and the evidence was just absolutely overwhelming. Like I said in my email to you and Simon, I mean, it objectively destroyed 9-11. Yeah, I believe that's the case. If we went to court over this, we would have so much against it. It just, they won't let it go to court, and not in any reasonable way. It would be a farce. Uh, so once once I was uh, satisfied about that, I just was, I felt like I had to join. I mean, there's not really 
very many people that you can have an intelligent discussion that where you can just question just fundamental things that people believe to be true. And so I just kind of felt the need to, I guess, connect with some other people, even though obviously it's in a very limited format and a, you know, on something like clues forum, it's not, we're going to have relationships, but I just, well, thanks for joining. Yeah. I mean, like I'll admit the, Whenever I first saw that there was a thread about satellites, I thought, well, this is crazy. Of course, there's satellites. And then I started asking myself, why do I believe there are satellites? And I realized it wasn't based on anything except for just I was told there were satellites. Yeah, that was a, that one was a hard one for me, too, mainly because of the lights in the sky. But then I... <laughs> But then I started doing some research into what those lights can be and have been in the past and still are, and I realized that satellites are one of the least likely arguments for all the – or least likely explanations. Uh, Well, look, I never thought for a moment when I looked up at the sky that I was seeing a satellite. And and I know – I I do read and I hear people say that they've seen moving blinking dots and stuff like that, but – I mean, uh, also get really good views of like the so-called supermoons, and I like went out there for like an hour during the last one and had the telescope on it and just watched it. Beautiful, and um, I didn't see anything pass in front of it. I mean, it was just I, the idea that there's seventeen thousand of these hunks of metal that we got up into the vacuum and are somehow some of them are stationary and then some of them are moving and. You look back at the original stories on CBS about and they show those dotted patterns of them circling the globe every 90 minutes. And it's just absurd. I'm glad I'm glad you're uh, you're asking these these questions. I have one more question for you, actually, if you don't mind. Yeah. Now, normally I would ask you about anonymity because that's been the question I ask people in the past. It's been, you know, why do you prefer anonymous and whatever. And we've gotten enough answers out of that. I think that I'm almost kind of done with that question, even though everyone has usually an interesting response. I'd rather ask you, based on a request from a listener and participant, Headfloss, who's also my dad, (laughs) um, that like, how can you put into context for people? um, Yeah, I guess I haven't written this question well enough yet. But it has to do with, you know, what culture are you representing? Well, that that's a really good question. And I would have to say that I don't really feel like I'm representing anybody. I just, I mean, I probably before, if, I, if you had asked me that question five years ago in the context of a different type of show, I would give a completely different answer because how I'd identify with the culture would be in the context of like shared understandings and things like that. But now I kind of feel like I'm a bit on an island in a strange land, um, and you can edit that out if you want to. But no. just the way the way it feels is it's very alienating in the sense that, like, I mean, you got to understand where I live. I mean, people are arguing about whether or not windmills present a danger to the Air Force training missions. I'm like, so, <laughs> so people are concerned that there's going to be like a. You know, we gotta let that those Air Force train, otherwise Al Qaeda is gonna get us. Kind of like it's it's so preposterous that 
I mean, even people who pretend that these arguments are like serious arguments and in public, they'll pretend that, you know, they're really being debated and in private, they'll laugh with me. I'm like, oh, too bad they can't pull their uh, jets up high enough to, you know, the, the height of a windmill. Uh, <laughs> they need a full 30 mile radius. Yet, you know, 50 years ago, we were sending monkeys to space or something. Um, I'm like, and how are we going to protect us? from ISIS if we can't get past the windmills. I mean, it's so absurd that I can't have <laughs> discussions in this town with anybody because professionally, I mean, we've got some gatekeepers here in town. They know who I am. I know who they are. We don't talk about it. Huh? But I, know, I know exactly who they are. But what they, do you mean when you say gatekeeper? I'm, I'm sorry. But uh, I'm, just... talking, I'm talking about... Um, the shenanigans. I mean, look, originally I thought that Sandy Hook was like the exception to the rule. Like, OK, maybe every now and then they do just a purely fabricated event um, to get the whole country. And it's just like mind screw operation. But now I'm thinking, OK, so they reluctantly have to cover some real things. But most of the most of the stuff that like has a. A predictable lifespan it's just contrived garbage does that make sense and so you have to have a few actually i would could you clarify because my my sense of sandy hook is that it's still a super controversial it was like a 9-11 sized yeah it was, bigger, it was a bigger psyop for sure and magnet but there are so many local psyops that are just complete trash and whatever reason they're run like I don't know, for um, increased funding for the fire department, so they have to make sure that they cover a few fire. Like this last year, there was one incident where I saw a bunch of cops blocking off the streets, and I saw fire trucks, and I saw ambulances, but I didn't see anybody being tended to. I sure as hell didn't see a fire. I saw nothing except for people standing around blocking off streets. I got home that night. I saw a story about a house burning down and, uh, and a guy, Tommy, the, that they called Tommy the picture guy, sadly being killed in this house fire. I was like, wow. So a house fire with no smoke. I mean, (laughs) this is stupid as hell. And then, and then we had this random, uh, shooting while I happened to be on vacation in Colorado. I'm not suggesting they did this while I was out of town on purpose. I'm just saying while I was on vacation, I learned that this this guy is driving down the street and he sees these two uh, this pretty girl walking with her friend. And he decides that he's sad because he doesn't have a girlfriend and this girl's pretty. And so he goes home, has a conversation with the devil about it. The next day he stalks her and waits for her to walk home from school. And then he randomly shoots her like 14 times and then shoots her friend in the stomach. And uh, so the one that got shot 14 times is dead. And the friend, she makes a full recovery. And exactly one week later is the honorary captain at the high school football game. And she's cheesing it on camera. Sounds like a good country song. And it's just terrible. And the, and the, the dad, the so-called dad of the girl that got killed, Lauren Landavazo. Oh, brother. His name is Vern Landavazo. Even on his LinkedIn page, it shows him to be a, even if you believe that, he's still wearing a stupid t-shirt. 
and it shows him to be working at the Air Force Base here, the Shepherd Air Force Base. Oh my gosh, Land of Oz. Land of Oz. Do you have the sense that these are because th- this is so absurd, and the the conversations that you're talking about sound uh, so ignorant that it makes me think they must be like Texas must be the center of where these sobs are developed. That's what's. Simon Simon was like, what's it like to live there? I was like, why is it interesting? And he goes, you're like in the heartland of fakery. Yeah, it must be like Texas A&M University must be like one of the places where they train you to do these, you know? You know, I strongly suspect that Texas A&M and OU and are highly involved with um, recruiting uh, disinfo agents. As a matter of fact, it's interesting you mentioned that and uh when I was at Baylor, I had a friend who was one year behind me in school, but he was quite smart. He was rec- heavily recruited by universities because he was a National Merit Scholar. And I took him with me to OU because I was thinking about transferring there. And uh, they gave him the red carpet treatment and me, too, because I was with him. He ended up going there. And uh, ever since then... He's been a really strange character. He's lived out of the country most of the time, and every now and then I get a cryptic message from him. He lives in Israel now. Uh, wow. And, what? Uh, and, uh, yeah, like, I got a weird voicemail from him a few months ago saying that he was awaiting further orders at the Tel Aviv office or something. What the hell? And I was like, uh, further orders? I guess your further orders are to tell me what your original orders were. <laughs> So we like play these little games with each other and, and I've talked to him about 9-11 and so forth and he like agrees that it was all fabricated, but then he'll turn around and like say something stupid like, well, the moon landing though, that was totally real because they didn't have the technology to fake it. So. Well, that's a load of malarkey. They had exactly the technology to fake it. Film, film technology is hand in hand with the magic tricks and illusionists and like of course that's uh, so silly that's but, like but, saying magic magic isn't real anymore like people don't fall for magic right. chris kendall addressed that on one of his podcasts not too long ago i don't know if you recall about kind of shutting down that too many people argument people go to magic shows and they're entertained and they they see the guy pull the rabbit out of the hat or saw the girl in half and but there's no files and videos on the net or whatever that are showing how all this stuff is done, right? Right. It's a pretty tightly guarded secret among magicians how they how they do all this stuff and that the craft has been around for a long time and those secrets are still well guarded. Absolutely. Like my relationship to the court system, as you know, however you want to put it, Forrest, um, it's like this. Probably half my cases are retained. That is, somebody, for whatever reason, has called me and they want to hire me. Um, and then half of them are appointed. And uh, no, I don't think there's any conflict with respect to like getting paid by the state on appointed cases. That's my honest, objective but, answer. But you're defending people, though, right? Right. You're not a prosecutor. 
Right. But there are there are people that will they'll say, oh, well, you're not really going to defend me because you really work for the government because they're paying you for this case. I can actually see that point. That does sort of make sense to a degree. I mean, it, it, it makes more sense to imagine the judge is going to be objective when he's being paid by the state that, that because he's supposed to be the one that's actually weighing the scales and, and has to be impartial. Right. But if the state's bringing a charge against an individual and, and the guy tasked with impartiality is being paid by the party making the claim against an individual, then that's a, a definite conflict, I would think. Yeah, and, and what's an actual conflict and what's a what's a legal conflict are definitely not necessarily the same thing. Right, right. And at the end of the day, I mean, here's the deal. I mean, for instance, I'll get somebody that'll hire me from way out west Texas, west of Amarillo. You know, they'll come driving through with 200 pounds of weed. They get... They get stopped and searched, whatever. And I call it and I figure out what county it is. I'm like, okay, well, I know the DA out there, the county attorney or whatever. And I'll call him up and, you know, I'm like, okay, I know that DA. All he wants is money. So I, I, I took one case that was 200, roughly 200 pounds of marijuana. I pled it out to four different misdemeanors. They maxed out the fine of 4000 on each one. And they gave them one year of probation. And then, you know, in, in Wichita County, uh, the last time I had a 200-pounder, uh, they got 10 years deferred adjudication. They don't care about the fine. Um, then I had one in Clay County where they were trying to give them 10 years in prison. And we had to bluff them up to trial. And on the day before trial, they finally relented and gave 10 years of probation. So... I mean, for me, it's not about what the law is. The law doesn't even really matter that much. What matters is who I'm dealing with and what their motives are. Some of them are political animals. Some of them are just, they just want money for their county. Some of them are like trying to climb the ladder at their DA's office. And it, But if you don't realize what appeals to the person that you're dealing with, then you are royally screwing up. So I'm yeah, I, I think it, you're kind of confirming my suspicion about the system being less a case of having uh, knowledge of legality and, and, and an objective weighing of the facts and being more of a psychologist and understanding, like you said, the motivations of people and trying to yeah. uh, negotiate uh, with that uh, those terms in mind. Right. It's an enormous error to focus on the law. Uh, because nobody really cares about the law. I mean, the, the only way the law matters is to the extent that I can convince a prosecutor that it matters. If it's a brand new prosecutor out of law school, heck, I can convince them. It's a, and theoretically, it should be considered an illegal search. But after a while, the, the older prosecutors, especially the ones that don't give a damn, they know at the end of the day the courts aren't going to care. Most likely, they're going to uphold whatever search it is under some bogus ground, and that no appellate court's going to care. So, is it more like uh, you're kind of arguing for the character of the of the defendant? Sometimes that's what I'm. Sometimes that's what I'm able to do if that's what I have going for me. Anything I can find to go for me, I'm going to take it. Sometimes that's it, but sometimes I don't have that. I wonder. You know, this is the thing that I wonder uh, about this. Well, first of all, I. Are you is how much of this is okay to go in the show? 
I think this is fine. I mean, I've been vague enough about... A culture that you represent is a culture of people who practice law, but it's not exactly how... I don't speak on behalf of anybody else that I work with because they think, I mean, I don't really know what they think about me, but... What are your influences? What is your context? And I think that's kind of about the question of culture, what it really means. Like, for example, if I'm, you know, a white kid from Minnesota, that is important context for some people. It's yeah. like it's like oh I see so you were born into the state system of the United States the state system of Minnesota you know you 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 know that yeah. mean, that means something you are culturally viewed as white you know like that means something to to help people understand maybe but then yeah but then explaining your understanding of those understandings too and your responses to them whether you think these are good or bad labels you know, and yeah, stuff. like I'm always, I'm always getting, I'm always trying to find out as much information as I can about people that I represent because not because I care necessarily, but because I have a story that I need to tell, uh, the prosecutor, like, Hey, this guy grew up here. He went to first Baptist or went to wherever. And his parents are longtime members there. And he's, he's got a bright future ahead of him. Blah, blah, blah. He's been to, you know, A and M for the last two years. He's never been in trouble. It just he got caught with some weed. He's really sorry. His parents are embarrassed. You know, I have to, I have to go and tell a story and give a, give a context for him because uh, it makes all the difference. A large part of the outcome of of what's going to happen is your understanding of the prosecutor and what motivates him and how he's going to respond to the things that you say about your clients as well. Oh yeah, definitely. And, 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 if, I, and if, if I've got a client that's from the wrong part of town or from another country, or certainly if they have any kind of Arab sounding name, um, regardless of how harmless they are, I'm going to focus on something else about the case other than my client's, you know, personal background or history. We, we live in this country that we're told is all about, uh, you know, look beyond, you know, the the surface. And everyone is free, everyone is equal. But the law system is the opposite. It's judging people on the most surface things and then throwing them in lifetime jail for it or even sentencing, sentencing them to death for it. It's just awful. Uh, yeah. I, I agree. Well, and that's one thing that I kind of wanted to cover. And, and when, like I said, I, you're sort of confirming my system. And I, I do have this understanding from other research that I've done is that the the system, the way it works in reality, and I applaud, applaud you for having the uh, insight to be able to get into those motivations of people and use whatever tools that you can find to get your – and it sounds like you're having a great success, so that's awesome – but it's the the PR that we're given about the legal system and whether and you hear that quote all the time are we a country of laws or a country of whatever and yeah. and but in reality we're we're not a country of laws we're we're a country of arbitrary justice that's imposed on on behalf of certain individuals and their personal prejudices right here's it's, one way here's one way to think of it our constitution and our laws are set up perfectly such that if the prosecutor and the judge are cool with a proper result, then they got something to go on for sure. But what do you mean? But what do you mean when you say proper, though? 
what I mean is they have they have a framework set up to where they can definitely, if they want to do the right thing and the circumstances are just such that they want to do, want the result to be in favor of the defendant, they will have the framework there to do it. But obscured in all that is the fact that they just ignore the framework most of the time. Like, they, we are told through these court opinions that the cops are not allowed to do certain things. Um, like, for instance, when you get pulled over for a traffic stop, the court has said that they're only allowed to detain you for as long as is necessary to effectuate the purpose of the stop. So, basically, all of my cases where people get big drug cases out on the highway, they're people that get stopped for a traffic infraction that's, you know, a, it, it's just an allegation that they made an illegal lane change or something that they take the officer's word at face value. And then they pull them over. They have them, they physically make them come to the, the state trooper's car, sit them down in the passenger seat, and they sit there and run their uh, license and their insurance. And while they're doing that, they start asking a whole bunch of nosy questions about where they're going and where they're coming from and how they got there and all sorts of intrusive questions. But they do it under the guise of, hey, this is during the time it takes to complete this stop because I have I, it's proper to check their license and their insurance and their registration. And if I happen to develop suspicion during this time, now I can justify the length of the detention. So then the person starts getting nervous because, well, they've been on the side of the highway for 20 minutes. Then they ask for consent to search. And if they, sir, they, they give consent, then it's going to be upheld because... Well, in hindsight, everything the person said and did is suspicious, and they put it in a report because the courts have given them this nifty little exception that swallows up the rule, and that is if, if they develop independent suspicion during the legitimate stop, then they can justify a longer detention. So it's just a bunch of word games, and anytime the courts have these big opinions in favor of the defendant, I assure you they've left a a back door for the cops to be able to just monkey with the wording in their reports or some other way, but they never stop what they're doing. It seems to me there's a, a very big fundamental problem with the idea that the law just reflects the character of the, of the people, you know, and like the law is just kind of like vehicles. And that is, for example, we have all these people that are that we know are very involved in knowledge of 9/11, but they haven't divulged it. They won't they won't go to court over it, and they're in positions where they will never have to face justice. And yet, the character of the American people is such that they've judged these immoral. I don't know what you call them. They're 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 cranks. They're they're just the ultimate bastards that run this place, this this farce of a system. And and they're like, oh yeah, you know, they probably have it all sorted out. It's probably for the best. So, what can we do? <laughs> yeah, that's an excellent question. I have no idea. I find myself um, I find myself a bit bewildered with my job. Uh, because I realize when I take a case, 
I'm, I'm actually at the point now where I will tell a person that's hiring me that, hey, if you want a, you know, sort of a classic uh, textbook lawyer that's just going to go to the manual, follow the, the procedures to get you your so-called due process, you do not want me because I don't, that's not the way I operate. I have to operate based on how I know the system actually, quote, works. And that is, it doesn't really work at all like you think it does. And and I just tell them, if you're not comfortable with that, you need to go find somebody else. Uh, but if you want somebody who understands how this thing really operates, then I'm your best shot. Because you're not going to sort of enter into this process and like come out with an improved life. You need to understand that you're trying to mitigate the damage to your life right now. You're going to take a hit. It's just, is it going to be fatal or is it just going to be a, you know, like a hit to your wallet temporarily? So I try to manage people's expectations based on how I know it's going to go down. And some people don't like that. They want to hear, oh, God bless America. If I, if I dig my heels in and fight, then, you know, Lady Liberty will rule the day and I will be exonerated and blah, blah. That's uh, the PR though, right? Yeah, so I wanted to tell you all a, um, a firsthand experience of mine recently uh, where I learned a hard lesson about even I, with my experience, I believed mistakenly that the I thought that the DA's office was going to be concerned about bad press. Uh, last June, so June of 16, um, I represented a guy who had been on he was on 10 years of uh, probation for a robbery. I hate to say silly robbery, but, you know, an unloaded BB gun. He was 19 at the time. He'd had a few violations, nothing like a robbery, just uh, like a failed drug test, DWI, that kind of thing. And uh, anyway, we had a contested hearing on it. I was trying to get the judge to keep him on probation. Judge gave him four years. In our system in Texas, if you get four years and it's not an aggravated offense, it's not a what they call a 3G offense, and it doesn't have a deadly weapon, and there was no deadly weapon finding in this case, then your parole, it's kind of a complicated formula, but basically if you get four years, you can expect to do about one. But that's assuming that you actually go to prison and get their, quote, rehabilitation services. So are you all following? Mm-hmm. So the judge sentences him to four years. This is early June of 16. Through means that I still don't know, his paperwork was never properly processed, and he remained in the county jail and thus was not able to get his rehabilitation services, even though his family was calling up there constantly saying, hey, he needs to go on to prison. And uh, so I filed a motion for what's called shock probation, to ask the judge to say, hey, look, I know he's been sentenced to prison, but he's already been incarcerated for this long and he's had changes in his life, etc. Well, in the intervening time before I filed that motion, he was transferred to a different county where he pled guilty to a misdemeanor DWI for which he was violated on the robbery charge. Well, so this is in July of 16. So he had been locked up for a little over a month. He gets transferred to this other county. He pleads guilty to this misdemeanor. They give him time served. They let him out of the jail. They don't just let him out. They tell him he has to leave. And he tells them, hey, I'm supposed to be going to TDC for a four-year sentence. And they said, we don't have anything showing that we can hold you. We cannot keep you. You have to leave. 
Like uh, it, it takes it takes time. It takes money to have someone. Or what else would be their motivation for that? No, this is just sheer incompetency. They are simply looking at their screen. They don't see a legal device to keep him. They let him leave. A Wichita County screwed up. Hmm. The sheriff's department here screwed up. And so he's forced to leave, and he's told he can't come back. He has to leave. So his fiance picks him up. The first thing he does is call me. And I'm like, I wasn't expecting a call from you. I didn't know you are allowed to call from prison these days. And he goes, I'm not in prison. I'm at home. And I was like, okay, how did that happen? And he, so he tells me, they made me leave. And I don't know what to do. And I'm so there's no warrant out for him. He's not a fugitive. There's no legal instrument other than the judgment sentencing him to prison. And so nobody's looking for him. Wichita County doesn't even know he's out. So after consulting with two other lawyers, um, one of them was of the opinion that every day he was out, he was committing a new offense of escape. Uh, the other one was of the opinion that since he didn't do it on his own, he was erroneously at liberty and he didn't have to turn himself in. I decided after talking to both of them that he was, because of uh, it being a four-year sentence with the way parole works, that he would get a lot more credit for turning himself in and make himself look better. Because if he just sort of laid behind the log that whenever they finally did catch him, he'd probably have to do the whole four years. It was a very difficult decision. He came in and turned himself into the judge, walked in in his, in his civilian clothes and with nobody looking for him. Another lawyer took him over there. I was busy at the time, but the judge shook his hand and thanked him for doing the right thing and turning himself in. So I said it. So I filed a motion a few months later for a motion for shock probation. And I thought, gosh, the DA's office is not going to want and the sheriff's office is not going to want there to be a hearing airing out their incompetency of a guy that, you know, they basically forced out uh, by via, you know, fumbling the paperwork who ends up out on his own. And the only way they even have him in custody is because he came and turned himself in. I mean, how preposterous is it that he's a danger to society after coming and turning himself in like that with no warrant? So I was thinking, surely they will not want there to be an actual hearing on this. It would just be too embarrassing for them. So I filed the motion. The judge did not have to grant the motion to even hear it. Our law is that the judge can deny it without a hearing, but he can't grant it unless he has a hearing. So when he granted the hearing, I thought, oh, this is game, set, match. The DA's office is not going to oppose me because they are not going to want this going on, on the record. Instead, we do have a hearing, and they double down and put an expert on that says that they could charge him with escape, but they're going to be gracious enough not to charge him with escape. I mean, they doubled down on it, and uh, the judge denied my motion, and he's still in prison. And there's not been a single news story about it, and, I'm, and I've since learned that, well, okay, so there are most of the prosecutors up there actually think that the media it has some sub level of... Uh, objectivity or that they care or they really want to report what's going on. And then there's a couple of them that know that they're only going to be told to report whatever it is they're supposed to report. They're not going to report things that embarrass the wrong people, period. It doesn't even matter if it's a public hearing in a courtroom. It doesn't matter. I, I could go and like pound on the doors at the news stations. They're not going to cover that. It's not going to happen. So that was me learning a hard lesson. But I was calculating 
that that prosecutor would believe them to be vulnerable politically because of the media, and I misjudged that prosecutor. He's apparently more in the know than I thought. What really news is is video news releases of paid, you know, programming. There must be some way of doing that, and then they would. I wonder, is it possible? Is there a way to be like, well, here's my interest, and there's, and they say, well, do, is there a way that they ask for a favor or money? You know, like how, how does it work? Well, my question would be, or my my concern, if I were Ace, and I don't want to. Obviously, you can clarify this for me, but I would be curious to know that if you were to rock the boat to a particular level, if you were to embarrass a judge or a district attorney, what what kind of repercussions do you think that would have for you as a as an attorney that has to be in front of them with uh, your next set of clients over the next year or two or whatever, if you were uh, to put them in a compromising position? Of course, your question presupposes that there is something I could actually do to cause them to be embarrassed. Um, right, right. That's not a concession I'm willing to to make, uh, but let's just take that as a given for a moment for purposes of discussion. I would say that they already know full well who I am. There's no doubt that they know I'm Sacred House Slayer, just a couple of people. Um, oh, wow. I, I, don't, I don't have any real doubt about that. Mm. I mean, they have not told me as much, but it's... Clues Forum is really, really a small, I mean, gosh, when you look at it any, at any given time, there might be 30 to 40 people in the whole world on there, if the yeah, numbers are right. That's, that's right. That's actually very true. And the funny thing is, too, like, it will be like 10 people leave and then 10 people show up. It's really been like the same small stream and then the handful of active, what I would just call active participants, as in, like, if you look at the last hundred posts, you know, how they're broken down. I mean, how many active people are there on Clues Forum that are members? I don't know the answer to that. A few dozen, I'd say, maybe. Perhaps. If that. So uh, imagine, if you will, living in the heartland of Fakery, uh, where basically the city I live in is half Half of its its existence is artificial in the sense that, you know, its economy is completely dependent upon a useless Air Force base. Um, And so it's not like the military is going to be unaware. They're involved in everything here. I mean, that Vern Landavazzo spoke from the pulpit sitting down in a stupid T-shirt at First Baptist Wichita Falls at his phony daughter's scam funeral. I mean, you can watch the idiotic thing online. It's uh, He's in a stupid T-shirt sitting down at a podium. Who the hell does that at their own daughter's funeral? It's so absurd. And everyone in the audience, they, they tried their hardest to fill that place up, and they barely got half of the lower level filled up, and everybody in purple T-shirts, and then they released purple balloons afterwards because it was their favorite color. <laughs> nothing to do with royalty or, you know... The- the idea that that these people don't know who I am, whatever, there's one sacred counselor on Clues Forum, and they're pinging the hell out of it all the time. The idea that they don't know who I am, I, I but don't. But you're not talking about your your colleagues in the courtroom that you see every day face-to-face. You're, you're talking about the, the yeah. they, the they out there that is watching all of us, right? I, I, I think there's probably one judge that knows who I am. 
Hmm. one or two judges and then um, a couple of people in so-called law enforcement in addition to whoever is in the military. Um, And how would you think that they, uh, do you think they like peek in on clues for them to time? But I, I I mean, I'm surprised that I I rarely talk to anyone that knows about clues for them. And when I mention it to people, the lay people, you know, I've never talked to anybody who's ever heard of Clues Forum when I ask them if they've heard of it. They only have heard of it from me. And I don't ask anybody at the court. I don't talk to anybody at the courthouse. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> no, I don't. I just go in, play my role, and get out of there. And not like a role like I've been assigned, but like the role I've assigned myself. So uh, for just trying to accomplish the best result I can for my client. The key people here, I mean, they're a really small handful of people, and they also happen to be the people that are, like, you know, allowed to decide beyond a preponderance of evidence that you're, you know, a danger to yourself and have to be institutionalized. So it just so happens that our gatekeepers have the power to, you know, lock you away for being mentally ill. So that's a pretty handy little device. Is that a threat that... Uh, basically faces everybody that can be uh, instituted arbitrarily at any given time on anybody? I mean, if you're aware enough of how the system works, then you have to consider it to be a threat because it's a tool. Well, well, that's why I'm asking you, since you're in the system, is that any particular person in in a position of authority could say, well, this person X is a danger to himself and others, so he has to be institutionalized. And then that's just a done deal, huh? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you don't recognize that, then you're you're a fool. I mean, it's really, really easy to have somebody uh, institutionalized against their will. I mean, it's like really. They'll be force-fed uh, drugs and all sorts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah okay. I've met some people who have unfortunately gone through that kind of situation, and it's it's not good. Not good at all. They, they um, oftentimes do uh, retreat from society when they come out because they realize they, if they talk with someone on a real level, they could face it again, or that's what they believe because of what happened to them. It's just it, it sick. Abs- it, it absolutely can happen. I mean, I there's no way I would really go up to the courthouse and like talk about 9/11 victims. I mean, I just. I just wouldn't do it. I mean, I, I I have no doubt at all that the key people in the know here, they know exactly who I am, but I'm tolerated. I'm, I'm not even just tolerated. Sometimes I, I think I'm rewarded just in the sense that people view me as extremely uh, skeptical and suspicious of the system. And so just my very presence in the courtroom lends it some legitimacy that it otherwise wouldn't have. I mean, I'm dressed in a suit after all, and I am speaking seriously, so this must be a very important place. But surely, if there were some kind of, I mean, let's face it, if 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 there were a real trial that was looking at all the evidence that we have that uh, the archive is, the archive of uh, 9-11, you know, the, the 120-minute movie or whatever. If it were shown and people could see, as we have shown, that it is a composited, artificial, fake news broadcast, you know, if if we could even say there there are good, real ones that are totally free of <laughs> lies and spin, then 
I mean, and professionals are saying, look, judge, you have to face this. They're, we can't, we can't, un- it's fake, you know, it's fake video. That, mm-hmm. That's got to be convincing. But I, I would not make the assumption that the judge is not employed by the same people that have employed the people to create the fake videos. Yeah, They're all working for the same bosses. So there's no objectivity or independence between government, media, court, politicians, all this sort of thing. They're all in the service of the same objective. Yeah, they're all in the service of the same belief system, I would say. But in that belief system, there there is, you know, I don't want to pit us directly against a belief system. I've met people from all sorts of belief systems who are who are willing to go. Okay, yeah, you have a point, and in the sense that they they're random, they would disagree with one another, but they can on some level, on a, in a one-on-one situation, maybe, maybe not in a trial setting, agree with what what any reasonable person would find irrefutable. But yeah. you're talking about an institution, though, that's created to serve and protect itself. That's yeah, no, that's true. That's true. And then yeah. everyone who's in there, it doesn't really matter who they are. So, uh, yeah, I think the only real option is to withdraw in whatever way you can, whether it's mentally or if you can financially or yeah, just with I, the amount of attention you pay to it. That's kind of what I choose to do is to try to pay less and less attention to it and focus more on the things yeah, that are in front of me. I'll be the first one to admit that if I didn't believe I needed to make money and keep kind of going on the treadmill, then I would no doubt exit the uh, legal profession. I mean, I would never step foot in that courthouse again uh, because I, I, I think that I lend itself. I think I lend the, the system credibility that it doesn't deserve. It sure hasn't earned. But at the same time, aren't you able to sort of provide a valuable service to people that are under attack by the system and, and mitigate the yeah, uh, damage that yeah, I I, th- I think that's fabulous that you're doing that. So exactly. Uh, yeah, there are times where it's very gratifying to know that. All right, so I gamed the game and got somebody like a great deal, or you know, I you know I was able to save them from having to go to prison or whatever. I mean, that does feel good. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've got lots of uh, internal conflict about all these things. Yeah, it's amazing you can do it knowing what you know, but I, I, I respect. That's all I got to say. Like, yeah, I'm honored that you've shown up uh, with yourself here at at uh, in our podcast and in and on Clues Forum. It's great that there are people out there like you doing what you do. Well, well, thanks for thanks for having me. I I hope that there's something about uh, my experience just working in the system and the things that. It, that I've learned, I mean, and simultaneously being able to be a member of Clues Forum and ask fundamental questions and do all those things at the same time, they're really, they're really not so mentally compatible all the time. Because uh, you have to be very agile to go in and out of conversations with people that are talking about, you know, silly political things or uh, whatever they're doing in Austin legislation wise and you have to know when to pretend that it kind of matters. and But I really just don't say much. Uh, I've remained pretty silent and and 
you know, I've probably not been as uh, brave as, you know, I've read so much of what you've written, Hoy, that, you know, suggests, you know, empowerment to come out and speak. And, and in those times when I'm reading that, I'm thinking, yeah, well, I've been pretty cowardly, but it's really just about self-preservation. I mean, uh, I don't know what line I could cross where I suddenly become, uh, uh, intolerable. I don't know. I think that I'm, I think I'm at least observed. And if I crossed a certain line, I think I would know it. If we're just saying no to, no to the system, I don't think that's a big threat to it. You know, they're like, fine, leave. Right. Find something better, you know? Right. Uh, so, but it's more, I think the people that, uh, cause trouble within like the power circles and wrestling for that those power you know like there's literally gang wars yeah going on and if you're not in a gang it you don't seem very <laughs> yeah like, important like, like whenever you talk about how like if there was a jury that could really objectively look at the 911 evidence they would see I mean not only could the government not prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt we could we could prove our case beyond a reasonable doubt that it was a fabrication. Absolutely. Um, but the question now to me is, you know, in all of my writings about bringing that to people's attention, I guess I hoped that, you know, I'd find folks like you guys to kind of emerge and say, well, okay, now we understand this. What, what do we do? How do we, how do we go somewhere with honesty and truth? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll just give you my own my own personal experience with that. And I thought, well, OK, so, I mean, I'm respected by, you know, intelligent people. So I will just dip my toes in the water here. And what I've found is very intelligent people are willing to sort of step outside their comfort zone for a moment, observe something. And then it seems like if I give them a little time, most people will just retreat away from the topic because it makes them realize that they're going to have to confront a whole bunch of social awkwardness, a lot of cognitive dissonance, and they just, they're too afraid to even address it. So they just retreat to a place of safety and a place of comfort, what they're used to. But there are a couple of people that I've talked to that have been like, all right, so I'm willing to challenge these things. I'm willing to really think about it. And, but they will only talk about it in the safe confines of like one-on-one or, you know, where they know that they're talking to people who are not going to burn them. But out in public, I mean, people will still pretend that, you know, that this ISIS stuff is all legit or whatever. I mean, nobody's going out and saying, hey, 9-11 is total garbage. Here's why. I mean, nobody's really doing that. Or the Cold War, which we can actually get into right now if you want. <laughs> well, I, I don't know that it's – it shows a lot of compassion, too, to completely unravel someone's version of reality if they're not necessarily going down that path, right? I mean, it's a difficult thing. I, I mean, I, you could say that it's sort of uh, maybe an abdication of responsibility in some ways, but I think maybe it's – it's it's a it's a hard. I mean, it's been a very gradual climb for for me certainly. It started uh, over a decade ago, probably to get where I am. So yeah, you don't want to hurt. You want to be shouting from the rooftops, but at the same time, it's a lot to process for someone that hasn't looked into this stuff. 
Well, yeah, and I think the other thing that I was hoping to find with people to have this conversation, besides just the conversation, which we'll get to, which is awesome, but we'd come up with something besides billboards, running around naked, screaming, besides the usual way of explaining the truth. And I think that actually Simon modeled it really well when he just coolly made a little documentary and wrote some music and he's just like, yeah, I just, you know, we just talk with people. And maybe that is the revolution. Maybe that's what it really looks like. It's not it's not an army. It's not a, you know, a dramatic news story. It's not anything like that. It's just people patiently speaking with one another and spreading the truth little by little. Yeah, it's definitely not going to come in the form of, you know, mobs turning over cars and stuff. Uh, I, For me, the... The thing I've found that most effective is really, um, gosh, you nailed it first with, uh, you, you really nailed it about showing compassion. Uh, so what I do is I don't, uh, pick people that I don't think are up for it to even talk to because, uh, there's some people I just sort of intuitively understand that they are not going to allow their their worldview or their system, their belief system to be challenged in any way. So I, as a compassionate measure, I think that's the right word. Um, will not even introduce them to the topic because I don't want to upend their life or their understanding of the world. Cause they won't be able to handle it. They are too, they've already shortcutted their way to a simplified understanding of the world. And, uh, so I think picking the right people to talk to up front is key, but that really requires you to basically take people on one-on-one. Man, compared to you guys, I must sound like a troll. <laughs> All I do is want to confront people and rub it in their face and be like, no, you're telling me a lie. You're full of shit. Drop it. Yeah, I mean, I, no, I don't see that as trollish. I just see that as being 33-ish. I mean... <laughs> I mean, when I was 33, if I had known then what I know now, I don't know if I'd be able to handle it at all. It's probably a good thing I was a little older before I even started realizing it, because I don't, I don't know how I would have responded to it, to it, especially at the young age. You're what, 25 or <laughs> I don't know, whatever age you were, whenever you sort of put it together. That's really young. I mean, mm. and. For Farce, that probably sounds even younger than it does to me. I've, right? I've always been very suspicious of government legal system, probably due to the fact that I was pretty enamored with Herb when I was in my teens. And being from Texas, I, I guess you're probably familiar that at one time, possession carried a, a stiffer penalty than I think mayhem and rape and kidnapping. And oh, God knows what. Yeah, That's it was wrong. crazy. You could get life for... Possession of a, a bag or something. What is with and, Texas, you guys? You gotta it's, explain it's this. Great. To me. I, I, it's crazy. I don't, I'm, I'm amazed that you have had people walk with the, the quantities that you've told us about. It's, it's fascinating and it's wonderful. But, uh, so I've always been a little bit suspicious. So, you know, questioning these things has not been that much of a leap for me. Well, it's interesting on these, on the big weed cases, they will get, I mean, they will get their faces plastered on the local news and the cops will always have pictures of themselves with or the pictures of dogs with, you know, stacks of weed and cash 
And so they're like really proud of their police dogs and their, um, and their policemen for getting this stuff quote off the streets. Cause I guess the streets were really getting high and having a hard time or something. But anyway, um, so they would, they'll always posterize their face and then, you know, people are moving on to the next news story five seconds later. And then I get hired about a month later. Sometimes I get hired sooner than that, but, and then quietly dispose of the case, get them deferred or, you know, some kind of deal where they just pay a fine and they go on probation and go back to their home state. And that's it. And of course those deals don't get reported. The only ones they actually report when it comes to like sentencing and stuff are like the, the really easy cases, the ones where the state takes no risk whatsoever and they put some, you know, unsympathetic child molester on trial and it's, you know, but on all these, uh, big dope cases, they don't really actually care. They just sort of pretend to care, but the media doesn't report, Oh, well, this guy that we reported on a year ago, he just, you know, came in and took probation and left town. They don't really do that. If that makes sense. Well, yeah, that's the thing I was, I've been kind of tossing around in my mind lately is this, uh, what all the, not that I pay that much attention to the news, but I do listen to no agenda in their encapsulation. What's being said by the talking heads and all this saber rattling evidently that's going on around the world. And, and to me, if, if you look at the pie chart of the gross national product and the amount of the budget that's devoted to the military, and the idea that our economy is based on a model of con- perpetual expansion, then they, these weapons and military ordnance and hardware and everything have to keep being made and produced and, and distributed somewhere, whether it's to local police departments or third world countries or updating and what are they scrap an aircraft carrier, build a new one, some conflict, you know, it's and then now uh, to the point with the, the media apparatus in complete control of the military and, and or the state, the wars don't necessarily even have to be real. They can, you know, they can blow up a mountain and, and say, well, that costs $33 million it's, or, or $11 million or $9 million or some multiple of, of those. And, and there that budget has been kind of washed clean and they can continue to make this stuff and scrap it or whatever they're doing with it. But, it just seems like a perpetual way to keep that apparatus moving, you know? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and if, if, if they can do the same thing with the police departments, too, they can report on some heroics of the local police where they're inter- interdicting drugs and whatnot and get new yeah. uniforms and guns and radar and whatever they can sell, you know? Okay, so uh, there was another lawyer, and he was kind of a big shot uh, civil rights litigator. And so he sort of puts on this show of like he's going to hold the government accountable for its, you know, misdeeds and violating constitutional and civil rights. So he does a lot of federal litigation on they're called 1983 cases. It's just a section in uh, federal law. But anyway, uh, so this guy was doing this big federal lawsuit against the juvenile probation department for the quote, always arrest policy, which is contrary to Tennessee state law. Uh, because in this particular juvenile court in over 20 years, this judge had never found a single person not guilty ever. Okay. Oh my gosh. And so, 
There's never been a finding of not guilty ever. And so the real story is that there's an always convict policy. And so this guy does this lawsuit over the always arrest policy. And uh, he sort of forgets to name this particular judge as a defendant. So that issue never gets brought up. Uh, I noticed that you uh, neglected to put judge whatever um, in the lawsuit. I suppose next time you will uh, t take on the always convict policy. And the guy kind of looked, oh, okay, so this always arrest policy thing is a sideshow to dodge the bigger problem. And so what happens is there appears to be accountability, appears to be responsibility put on somebody for doing something wrong. And then everyone can go back to their usual understanding of all is well. The system mm -hmm. checks itself, the laws work, the lawyers are working hard at it, and you can always you can all go back to life as you as you know it. And uh, in reality, all they did was insulate themselves even more. A limited hangout for, for the court. So that's just one microcosm of kind of how it's done. Um, that's really disturbing and i think and i don't want to get too much into sensational news stories here but i i do want to touch on because we i mean we have a lawyer here and uh i just want to ask you you know about the the alleged black white gap in incarceration rates and where we have something like i don't know like it looks like I don't even know how to describe it, like 30, like, like 10 times the number of black people than white people getting incarcerated and stories like one in three black males going to prison in their lifetime, more black people in prison today than enslaved in 1850. The, the numbers are just okay. harrowing. And, and I need to understand this from someone who's witnessing this happening. Let me, let me, let me, let me try to explain this in a way that where I don't even have to touch on racism and I can explain it to you in a, in a, in a straightforward way that um, I'm not dodging the race issue. I'm just explaining how it's institutional. Um, the key factor in prison is criminal history. If a person has so-called criminal history, it means that whenever they get in trouble, they're so much more likely to go to prison. So like a prosecutor's offer for someone who's been like a convicted felon, their offer instead of five years of probation or five years deferred, whatever, it's now, let's say it's a third degree felony, maybe it's five years in prison. Well, okay. So let's say you live on the wrong part of town and you grow up and your brothers and your uncles and your dad, they've all been in trouble and in the system. You don't even know anything different than that. You get a juvenile history really early. Um, all the people you're hanging out with, every time the cops get a chance, they stop you. And uh, you get a record really early. Then before you know it, well, we have this nifty little thing called doubly enhanceable. And if you've had two prior pen trips and you pick up a felony that's a first, second, or third degree, well, now your sentencing range is 25 to life. So uh, what happens is people that are really, they just 
uh, grew up in the wrong part of town. I mean, that's where the microscope is. They, they, the cops will refer to it as a known narcotics area or a high crime area. Well, of course it is. That's where you've got your microscope. I mean, you would find that everywhere if you went and put your microscope on the, on the property. So they just confirm what they already have been told is true. And they're told in training, these are the high crime areas of town. This is where you're going to patrol. And they learned to, you know, detain people for riding bicycles on the wrong side of the street or not using a crosswalk or not using a sidewalk. And then they confirm their suspicion that they've got drugs on them because a lot of times they do. Um, and so my, my point is I, the law is set up to make sure it funnels. I mean, I hate to call it this because it's what I, I guess I've had to develop some kind of a sense of humor, but um, it's a little bit sick, but I, I just call it the human meat grinder. I mean, the system requires some flesh and blood and it will extract it from the places that it thinks it's suitable for. And so there are areas of town where they just, I mean, they're nothing but flesh and blood for the human meat grinding system. It's infuriating to even talk about, but I'm sure it's a, a thousand times more infuriating for the people who actually have to live through this and have been trying to get people who are enamored with the system to understand the flaws. And yep. I, I've just, I just want to try to address this because Clues Forum has been accused of being uh, lenient with complaints uh, from people of color or things like that, or or white people who don't understand the true superiority of the white race and other bullshit. And I just wanted a, a way to explain this to people so that they so that they get it. This is a cultural thing. This is not. I mean, you know you what know, I'm saying? People people get reassured. It, it's like it's it's all kinds of circular reasoning. I mean, they're told that. Hey, these people, this is a high crime part of town. You gotta to worry about this part of town. See, these people are going to jail, they're going to prison. So it's, it all self reaffirms. And. Yes, you know. and it, and it has to do to me with what you were talking about before, about how in the trial it's about like judging character and such. And it, and I just, like, to kill a mockingbird comes in my mind, like, stronger than previously because it's about, well, because this person is of color, they must be they must be up to no good, and that's so. There's also something that a term that I heard recently that I hadn't thought about too much: uh, the race industry. And this has to do more with perception and media, and hype and the hyping of the differences, and then the whole divide and rule strategy and stuff. That there's a huge incentive for the race industry. To focus on the division and not that it's not happening and I'm not taking that idea, uh, endorsing it in any way, but there's also a huge advantage to the race industry toward, uh, you know, papering over any sort of objective uh, observation. And then, and it also, I mean, when you look at uh, a lot of the problems that involve the race, issues and where a disadvantaged group is being attacked, the attacks for the most part, and in my estimation, are coming from the state apparatus that are doing the most damage. 
But they're well, always yes, that's, that's, forever blaming people in the public, you know, the lunch counters. Well, that's the drama that I'm trying to get at, too. I'm sorry I, I, uh, to interrupt, but that helps me clarify what I'm trying to get at. We do. We must ask, as people who benefit the most from the system, if that's not being played against us. Of course it's being played against us. I mean, uh, the way I see it is racism, I, it's, it's really confusing because, you know, if there was any interest at all in any kind of racial harmony, of course there wouldn't be all these fabricated, uh, you know, like a, a random black snipering a bunch of cops in Dallas and then stories about cops randomly, you know, hunting down a black person. Uh, they've definitely hyped up every story they can to try to make blacks fearful of cops and to make cops fearful of blacks. So they've been psyoped into doing the very thing that we're all supposed to condemn and should racism, but they, they create racism out of thin air and it becomes a self, it's not even a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's just a design social engineering project. Absolutely. There's movies out there that you can see about the CIA and, and I guess we're probably familiar with the CIA involvement in drugs and, and weapons and how huh. at a certain point in whenever it was the seventies or 80s that massive amounts of cocaine and automatic weapons seem to appear in ghettos and dozens of cities across the U.S. all at the same time. And yeah. I mean, like, how how is that apparatus instituted without the support of some serious in infrastructure where that develops uh, practically overnight? And this is it's, it's some kind of government black ops program. Well, of course, it's going to lead to crime and violence. And, and it's at a direct attack on inner city neighborhoods. And so, you know, there, there, that's also the racial division. It, it has people looking in the wrong direction as well for like where these problems are occurring and why, you know, the drug laws, the, and the war on drugs, the black ops, the importation of these things into these particular areas. I agree. But then I also think, okay, there's 99% of your day, where you just are responding and reacting, especially in like poor communities where you just have to survive. Yeah. Uh, and then the 1% of time you have to reflect and go, huh, this is all set up in some weird way. You can't do anything about it anyway. So it's like the people in power uh, have to use their power for good to undo this situation. So I guess I just think instead they've managed to insulate themselves from any real challenge by making sure that the 99% of the population is busy whacking each other with sticks or afraid of some boogeyman Al-Qaeda or something. Yes. Or, or, or ISIS. I mean, or or Russia. Are, or Russia, which is like this, you know, yeah, the, the, the evil communist white people. Uh, this, <laughs> this is it's, just another, another regurgitation of the Cold War. I mean... Uh, I, the way I see it, I mean, I'm only 38, but I mean, I do recall in the eighties there being talk of the Soviets and the Cold War and how we were the two superpowers that could nuke each other. And I mean, I remember all that stuff and it seems to me that the nukes kind of wore off and people got like, oh, the wall came down. And so now we don't have that danger anymore. God bless America. We won. Um, and then got 
I guess people got fat and happy and whatever psychos were in charge decided that the next cool thing was going to be to start taking over, uh, well, I mean, basically an imperialist agenda by uh, creating the boogeyman Al-Qaeda. But, but they had to do that, though. It's kind of weird because they led that up. If you think about Oklahoma City, maybe there were like some trial runs because with Oklahoma City, they used a white guy who was a, an ex-military that, Sam McVeigh. Yeah, and he, of course, he had some anti-technocratic writings, right? So anti-anti-government materials, you know, of course, because we're supposed to view anti-government people as dangerous anarchists that can't be trusted with anything, mm-hmm. and they may be very well just going to purchase some fertilizer and blow you up when you show up to work one day at nine o two a.m. So they, I mean. That was a pretty good uh, mind-screwing operation they did there with Oklahoma City, and they show us this, like, apple-bitten building and, you know, all these stories and the, the kids' shoes half burn off. and uh, Always with the shoes. It's always the shoes. Yes, yeah. There's always, like, some pile of shoes. Uh, that seems like almost like a – I mean, I'm not saying there's some evil Jewish conspiracy, but there is a kind of weird – <laughs> Jewish theme like there's like these oh let's feel sad when we see a shoe you know like yeah uh, we have these we have these friends that um they're very open to these things and they come from a background that you really wouldn't think they would but they've shown in a tremendous amount of objectivity but when I showed them the Oklahoma City uh, research that we have on the forum they were like, wow, this is fascinating, especially after understanding 9-11, because they were like, last year we went to the Oklahoma City Memorial, and yeah, whenever we went in, they had these TVs on that were replaying the reels of the news footage that day, and then right after that, they had rows of kids' shoes. Oh my God, have you noticed they're doing that now in every museum? You go to the, I, Mar- you go to the Martin Luther King Museum, and it's the news reels from the day he was shot. You know, you go to the 9-11 Museum, and it's the explosions blowing up the towers. And if you go to, you know, that's what they do in museums now. It's just rewatch this been, footage. I haven't been, so I don't know. But when they told me about it, I was like, yeah. So it was like emotionally gripping and it's supposed to remind you back to that day of how you felt that day. And then now you're supposed to look at these objects and there used to be kids standing in those shoes. And it all is, of course, supposed to, you know, skip the premise and the fundamental questions of whether this incident happened at all. Yeah, and simply move you like a drama. It's just meant to make you tear up. That's all. Yeah. And so they had to have gotten this country basically into a, a place of like where they're going, OK, so people are willing to swallow hook line and sinker all these victims from oklahoma city that were created out of thin air so we can like go bigger with this and you know we can take over some countries Mm. yeah all we did in afghanistan was guard poppy fields i mean we basically just guarded the poppy fields i've heard that as well and drove trucks back and forth and that's pretty much all we did i don't know if either one of you have but i i can think of at least three maybe four people that I know that have somehow connections to someone they say told them that they were near the towers on that day or had someone. Yeah, it was. I mean, like the odds are so astronomical that I could have enough practically to fill a hand of of a second degree of connection. Now, whether these I just feel like for a lot of people, maybe 
far, far more people that, that could possibly have been involved in this event. It was a convenient way for them to insert themselves in a drama. Oh, yeah. Because they'd live in the city, maybe, and they could say, well, yeah, I, I was there. It's, I was like, covered in dust and, you know. It's funny you mentioned that because um, in, I've only had, and this is only through my wife, only have one person who has any who even says they have any connection with 9-11, and she heard this before we even knew anything about 9-11, for real. And this was years ago, probably 10 years ago. Um, our friends, uh, we went to their wedding in, in uh, Seattle, and uh, the woman, she told my wife that she was in New York City on 9-11, and she was supposed to fly out like the next day or something, and... Uh, and my wife said to her, and this is when my wife believed it all to be very real. And she said to her, I, it must have been very scary. And she goes, actually, no, I didn't notice anything. It, and my wife thought that was interesting that she just was like, no, actually, I didn't even notice anything. I just saw it on TV. <laughs> that to me <laughs> sounds more like New Yorkers. Like, seriously, like that would be more characteristic you know, there's a loud noise. Oh, that's just like a truck backfiring or something. Like, seriously, New Yorkers don't get, they don't pay attention. This myth that they were all like wrapped with their cameras on some smoke just doesn't, doesn't even make sense to me. No. And, and, and that's the thing about the absence of witnesses. Well, the absence of people who non-existing person can't tell anything. So whenever people say, oh, well, there would be so many people that could say that it was fake if it was fake. How, that is so backwards. It's like it really cuts against, against uh, logic so badly that it, it hurts.
so on Clues Forum, we have a subject called the Cold War Hoax, which I started back in May 26, 2011. And it's basically just a re, uh, copy, copy pasta from a, a kind of a weird alternative paper called the Phoenix Archives or the Phoenix Project or something. And now this is a, a, a kind of a conspiratorial paper and they're all over the map in all sorts of weird uh, ideas. But I thought this was uh, worth yeah, republishing it. It's called Eustace Mullins writes the $5 trillion Cold War hoax. And they wrote this in um, May 21st, 1996, or that's when they first published it. Um, but they're written in like numbered articles. So there's like 15 articles, almost like each one is a couple paragraphs. And it just talks about almost as if these would be the outlines for a book, but it doesn't get any further than this. And I think it's okay because it's just a good starting point. And the introduction reads like this. P.T. Barnum said it for all time. There's a sucker born every minute. For more than four decades, the American people have been terrorized, not by a foreign threat, but by their own government. In order for the Federal Reserve System central bankers to continue to loot the nation after the successful conclusion of the Second World War, they had to invent a new threat. The only candidate was our erstwhile gallant ally, the Soviet Union. The central bank conspirators faced the task of continuing to mobilize the people against a terrible threat, taxing them heavily in order to save them from destruction. Today, we are burdened by a $5 trillion national debt. Coincidentally, that is the sum we have spent on, quote, national defense, unquote, since 1945. The World Order billionaires launched a complex long-term plan to demonize Soviet Russia. Overnight, they would undergo a sea change from the darlings of the American political establishment to a dangerous and possibly overwhelming enemy. In my researches of more than 50 years, I finally located the smoking gun which exposed this conspiracy, a little-known article in the August 1977 issue of American Heritage magazine, Who Started the Cold War? by historian Charles L. Mee, Jr., editor of Horizon Magazine and author of one of the first Cold War books, Meeting at Potsdam. Uh, so if this is interesting, I'll just keep reading to to the main point, which is where all this is extrapolated from. I mean, I've read all of this material, and it is fascinating, but I can't help but wonder, in, in light of all the sort of different uh, disinfo that's been out there, I can't help but wonder if some of this... Uh, you know, global banker stuff is more like uh, eh, phony boogeyman type stuff. I, I, yeah, I think that's an important question. In fact, I was going to interject a lot during my reading and say, look, the world order billionaires, you know, matching, trying to match numbers like five trillion debt, which isn't even a real thing to five trillion spending on defense, which also isn't even a real thing. You know, all the stuff that they're citing is silly. Yeah, okay. Right? So you're 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 asking you're already challenging the premises. Oh absolutely. I'm on the same page with you on this. This is just okay. someone's uh uh framing what they think is is important information. You know, okay. I would I would definitely use different framing if we can even conclude that this is a real thing. Right? Hey well some, sometimes the disinfo if it's deliberate, or I don't know, but sometimes the disinfo can be very helpful if you can sort of figure out where they're trying to mislead. Right. Well, here's the thing. Like, 
the cult let's say let's say we're examining something real like uh the phenomenon of the media covering the cold war which is essentially all the cold war was right uh then how you spin it is is the important thing it's the bullshit and right so what i'm asking is the same question that this guy's asking which is where did this thing originate where did this campaign to demonize another country come from because that was something that people from that age lived through it was this constant looming like when is russia gonna bomb america you know and i i'm pretty sure that happened well as someone who's been there back in the day and i remember it well and well maybe that's a better place to start i had a very visceral fear of being vaporized by a nuclear bomb Oh, and and I'm, I, I say that in all seriousness. I spent all of my teen. Well, I had uncles that are, are slightly older than I am that were in Vietnam. And, of course, that was to prevent the domino effect of communism because oh, that was the ploy because communism wouldn't work unless the entire world was communist. Right. That was the idea that in order for communism to function and for us to enjoy the true fruits of a communist Society, all of the world had to fall to communism, and which would have meant authoritarian dictatorship and Boy, the end of the way of American life as we knew it. And we had to fight it in the smallest country, even Vietnam, because the dominoes were going to fall over if Vietnam fell to communism. Oh, sure, sure, sure. And Absolutely. so I was of draft age during those years, and I had to worry about the. I I wasn't actually of draft age. During the Vietnam conflict, but I still had to register when I turned 18, and I guess I could have been drafted for Granada or something. And But I did spend all my teenage years and early 20s, I guess, when I saw the day after. That was, like, real to me. It was just terrifying. For the for the millennials, what is the day after? The day after was a PSYOP uh, movie of the week type thing. Major network production, a made-for-TV movie about the state of the world after the nuclear conflict had begun and all the missiles hit the U.S. and stopped all the cars and people were wandering around with radiation poisoning and just the horror of it's the It's like the speculative sci-fi almost or something. And But when we, when we saw that, we, we were well enough conditioned – to where that juxtaposed with the images in our mind, it, it, it dovetailed perfectly. We knew how, that's just how it would be. And all of the fears that we had been imagining up until that point, we saw them clarified in that movie. And it was very real. to I don't think it's as real to young people today as it was to us then. I think they've sort of ran the line out on the nuclear threat, and they don't. it doesn't have the, the energy and the emotional charge that it did when I was a teenager. I may be wrong. Yeah, no. Now people are, you know, afraid of random uh, trucks plowing into crowds or some guy blowing himself up standing in line or something. Yeah, I just remember, uh, you know, when in college I'd be jogging and, and kind of looking at the horizon for that flash of uh, arc of nuclear missiles coming over. It was any day it could happen. The, mu- and- the mushroom cloud. Right, all of that stuff. Yeah, it could, and that was the problem too. It was just uh, you never knew. Really, it was. It was almost like the. You know, I think about it like the rapture in religion, the, the thief in the night, and all that sort of. At any moment, it could happen, and you'd be just vaporized. And there was, and and there was also a, a huge sense of helplessness. Like there was nothing that we could do 
to prevent it or mitigate it or there was no place to hide. There was no – you couldn't call your representative and say, hey, this is insanity. It was just there looming. And, of course, the our – I don't even like using we and our and all that, those pronouns. But the people that were supposed to be looking after our best interest were actually the ones that were most involved in yeah. – uh, in, 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 you know, imbuing the terror in everyone, right? The the most you could do was give them all of your, I mean, whatever money you had and whatever support you could give them. <laughs> the most you could do for yourself. Yeah, you're, you're really terrifying me, so I'm going to give you money and, and you can do it some more. As long as you can protect me, and even if you just might be able to protect me, you take whatever we got because we don't want to get vaporized. So that that was how I spent my, my teen years and early 20. And after a point, we just, I think a lot of us, uh, especially in being a musician and involved in club life, we spend our time just like drinking and partying, kind of like, well, if we're, if we're going to get vaporized, we might as well be. Might as well fun. live it up. Yeah, exactly. An wow. age old and, attitude that's worth having still to this day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So. so, so if you condition a whole society to be in fear of instant vaporization. Party. Well, I mean, you condition the whole country that way. I mean, if you think about it, the news media, it's, I mean, it's relatively new. I mean, the 1950s, yeah, it sounds like a long time ago for people that have only been here for 35 years or so, but it's not that long ago, historically speaking. And all of a sudden you have serious looking, talking people that sort of sound like you or your dad or your granddad. And they're wearing a suit and they're talking very seriously. So what they're saying must be correct. Um, all of a sudden you've got Sputnik and you've got people that they elect telling them that, oh, yeah, we've uh, Western civilization could be destroyed overnight. And so, like, how they go to I've, I've read these numbers about the spending going from 10 billion to hundreds of billions overnight. I don't know how true that is or how that works, but I do know that the Department of Defense spends a lot of money. And like Wichita Falls at the Air Force Base, I'm trying to remember what year it opened. It was in the mid-40s, I think, and its population doubled overnight, literally, and it's still been about 100,000 to this day. I mean, half the economy here is so-called defense-related. I mean, they're people that have nothing to do with anything except for showing up to work and shuffling around papers. But This actually people, you know. touches on an, a topic that's ancillary to this, but it, it involved, and, and I have no idea how to explore this, but the idea of, of the carrying capacity of the productive class, whoever you want to call them, and, and the amount of overhead and, and waste, and I, I consider all of this type of thing to be waste, uh, yeah. stuff that doesn't necessarily provide anything to the living standards, and it just seems like technology keeps uh, allowing us this ability to expand, to keep food and water and shelter and the basic necessities of life going, while at the same time, this other side of the economy also keeps expanding, which doesn't offer any sort of creature comforts or benefit to most people. So in reality, the people that are providing the necessities, I mean, they're also providing this overhead because it, it, it piggybacks on the necessity part. And I would love to have an idea of like what, 
the level of overhead is compared to what the benefits that we actually get to reap that we can use. And it's probably phenomenal if we, we could ever really figure it out. So back to the, the article, which is the, the initiation of this threat and clues forum, the first point that the guy makes is that in the article he cites in the 77 issue of American Heritage, uh, the author, original author, me, writes that on February 27, 1947, President Truman met with congressional leaders in the White House. Undersecretary of State Dean Ar- Acheson was present at the meeting, and Truman had him tell the congressman what was at stake. Acheson spoke for 10 minutes, informing the legislators that nothing less than the survival of the whole of Western civilization was in, in the balance at that moment. Blah, 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 blah. And uh, Senator Arthur Vandenberg of Michigan basically said... If the president wishes to sell his program to the American people, he would have to, quote, scare hell out of the country, unquote. It was at that moment that the Cold War began in earnest for the United States. And then he concludes this point by saying that the CIA claims that Soviet Russia was both the most terrifying military power and the fastest growing economy in the world. And he says that's mutually exclusive. No nation could have the world's greatest military machine, and at the same time support the world's fastest growing economy. But the statisticians successfully sold this scare story for years. So I, I just wanted to introduce this, this article because different people on the on discussions about the Cold War would take it different ways. Like people believing the official story would say, oh yeah, like this is the time that the that the government is really like, understanding what's going on and you know we've got to nip this evil communist thing in the bud and the the trappings of the of the typical conspiracy theorist would say oh yeah see this mainstream article this reveals the moment that it was all a big conspiracy but i think if you put on your like clues forum glasses and you take a step back from all this you realize that the pr about the pr is something that's constantly going on in all these psyops in fact, that's the main point of most of these psyops. The Cold War isn't something that ever started or ever ended. It is a constant historical revisionism that we're bombarded with on a daily basis in our media that says this Cold War was a thing that scared scared everybody and you know and, and it really did scare some people, but you know, I think we have to examine it like that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because it serves as a backdrop for understanding the way things are now, of course. Um, and I want to point out an irony with the whole uh, with the whole story. Uh, I mean, communism was supposed to be very scary and different. And at the same exact time, my brother pointed this out to me the other day. He goes, "You realize at the same exact time they were scaring everyone about communism, they were at the very same time." nationalizing the United States because we were, I was talking to him more about it in the context of like enterprise and businesses. And he was like, yeah. So like they were McDonald creating McDonald's and making it go national and all the networks were popping up at the same time in the fifties. And so like you have a national culture now that understands each other through mass media and through like the same stores in every city that way you don't really have different cultures within your country with, you know, mom and pop shops. You've got, you know, you've got the predictable stores, you've got the McDonald's, you've got Sears, whatever. 
Um, now, granted, Sears was around before that, but you get my point. It, it became more of a national centralized culture, which is what they were railing against with the Soviets, supposedly, the centralized government. Does that make sense? Okay, so like they're condemning the centralizing of power and they're condemning and they're identifying communism as the centralized, powerful government, oppressive government. Mm -hmm. All at the same time, they're essentially centralizing all the power in the United States and the hand and a handful of corporations and indeed consolidating all the different cultures in, in this country into one via mass media. It's kind of my perception of the Cold War has become that there are empires and in order to justify their existence, they have to demonize all other empires, which they call empires by name or they or they call them, you know, some kind of evil organization while denying, you know, their own role in perpetuating that that system. Right. Answering Farce Value's question about what what was the actual value of this and what were the benefits and it seems to me that it was an experiment in perpetuating what they did so successfully in World War One and World War Two, which was industrialize fear and turn it into a constant machine. It's a, basically a commodity. Yes, they needed to have people afraid because that's what worked to catalyze, you know, their the arms deals and as we were talking about earlier, the CIA going in and, you know, controlling the drugs so that the bad guys don't, or whatever their belief is. And in this article by Eustace Mullins, where he makes the claim that the CIA uh, has is trying to claim a mutually exclusive thing, you know, that no nation could have the world's greatest military and at the same time support, support the world's fastest growing economy, I'd say, isn't the United States trying to be that example, actually? I do think that that could be done. I I just think it would have to be done via um, invading and raping the resources of other nations to for you to be able to sustain your own economic growth and military power at the same time. I think it could be done. You just there has to be a victim. Maybe uh, Mullins is a bit caught up in some narrative that's not quite clear to me, because yeah, I'd say that it is essentially. The case that that the U.S. is attempting to be the greatest military power and at the same time constantly grows economy through empire. I mean that is the design. I'm, I'm sorry, I I personally cannot observe this country in a way that makes any mathematical sense, especially whenever you consider how many people we incarcerate, um, how much money is spent just locking up human beings. Um, and then you consider how much of the community is like, I mean, really, literally, like you've said, they are spending 99% of their day trying to figure out how to make it from waking up to going to bed. I mean, 99 or 100%. There are so many of those. It's just so lopsided. I don't see mathematically how it can even add up unless they're extracting, extracting wealth from other places. Well, and then the other thing I was thinking was it wasn't the Soviet Union that we were extracting wealth from either. It wasn't like this was this was a major thing that we needed to target. It's more like Russia and America really were allies the entire time and, and <laughs> yeah. al along with the UK. Everything else was uh everything else between them was uh 
was uh, the sustenance for the fuel or for the fire, I guess. Yeah, the true Cold War seemed to be like this unholy alliance between the UK, US, and Russia in warring against every independent nation. And in that... By, by pretending to be against each other through some proxies. Yes, and in that respect, the banking discussion is interesting because, come on, I mean, let's face it, the way that uh, an empire invades first economically before they try military things is through banking and property. Yeah, infrastructure uh, scams that they're going to build their infrastructure if they pay it, and they'll pay it back, and if they can't pay it back, then they have to do it via their oil production. Yes. Now, I, I think there are valuable things in this article, though. I mean, he makes a good point, for example, when it says Churchill launches the Cold War and Stalin's co-conspirator, Winston Churchill, the guy who basically, with FDR, delivered the the ownership of, the, um, of uh, Eastern Europe to Stalin mm-hmm. at Yalta, and... And now Winston Churchill, who who he's who the the article writer is characterizing as kind of like this unemployed, <laughs> washed up uh, celebrity politician, he's suddenly now in the limelight again, going with Truman. You know, oh, we have to have you know the Iron Curtain is coming, and let's turn this like backwater Russia country, which is actually suffering economically and suffering in pretty much every way turn it into an evil villain that can somehow, you know, rise back up to power. It, the the crazy lopsided, the crazy, like, demented thing about that is that th- the United States is the one giving the Soviet Union its power back during this whole time that they're like, oh, Russia's going to make a comeback. It's so evil. It's, it's on the rise. And they're just <laughs> laying it out. They're the ones actually going, okay, here you go. Like, here's the, you know. Yeah. Are either are either of you gentlemen familiar with Anthony Sutton? Uh, yeah, I guess he was he was kind of a, another Carol Quigley type character. I guess that was I think he was sponsored by Stanford or something to do some historical research, and he he discovered that a lot of the uh, you know the nuclear technology he he wasn't he on board with the hoax idea, but he did expose if you want to call it an expose since that they're they're not real but the the idea that the russian whoever had access to u.s nuclear technology that could only have been given to them basically so that that was the idea on paper and i would like to interject too that we're probably familiar with the fact that all of these countries now we're having similar types of psyop events right which I would yes. suggest are not independent of one another. Exactly. There's a, there is a continuity here going on from uh, America's involvement. Like Woodrow Wilson, like supposedly, oh, so hesitantly going into World War One. Oh, it's so scary. We're we're actually pacifists. I I'd, I'd argue that that was actually the very point when America was like, yeah, empire. You know, like let's rush into actually. It goes all the way back to Roosevelt in the Philippines when we well, decided, you know, well, let's just uh, let's just start expanding, you know. Well, just one more comment on Sutton. He had actually also had uh, uncovered, and, and you may be familiar with this, about the J.P. Morgan financing the Bolshevik Revolution. And I don't know if also you guys are familiar that I think um, 
Herbert Hoover had huge interest in he, he might have been the sole owner of like 75 percent of the mining interests in Russia just post uh, Romanov or whatever. So that that the whole thing, the start of communist Russia was all financed and set up uh, by U.S. and banking and government interest. If there's any truth in, in those types of discoveries that were made by Sutton. It makes me wonder, you know, how how much is immediate. I mean, I would think that a lot of what's done is uh, dealing with sort of immediate needs or perceived needs or agendas, and then how much of it is sort of a long term plan. I the answers to that that question, I I really don't know at all. But and seeing how it's played out, if you want to call it that. Is really fascinating, and like Hoy, you mentioning Woodrow Wilson, I mean, some very, very important things happened during that time of Woodrow Wilson. I mean, you're talking, you know, they did a dirty deal to get, you know, how they got the 16th Amendment for the income tax passed, right? Part of the deal, the the difficulty with it, and it's still, I guess people will argue about it to this day, not that it matters, but about getting it ratified was. They ended up getting the support of churches to supposedly support their legislators to to vote for it, and then they're, and then at the state level to support uh, the income tax. And in return, they were going to get the Seventeenth Amendment prohibition. So they, you know, as if that's a good deal anyway. But so they give them the power to uh, tax income at the federal level, the Sixteenth Amendment. And then they pass prohibition through the 17th Amendment. They keep their word on that. And then, of course, they repeal it. Um, so they did a bait and switch. And, I mean, people just got played. Uh, well, the, the whole idea of income tax, and I'm going to interject this here as well, is it? Sure. it's a complete non-starter because it starts with the assumption that your time is valued at zero, which is it's just ludicrous. Right. The fact right. that anyone could have floated that and pa- it, the the entity that's tasked with your protection that nobody could see the most basic fundamental flaw in the logic that if you trade your time and labor for a payment there's a zero gain there's no income right and it's it's I like agree. fundamental it's a fundamental contravention of logic to even have instituted this but that it, it you know it it got passed and instituted in law like so there's no concern with the well-being of us i mean that's that nothing should state it plainer than that yeah that's right the state is not concerned with the well-being of the people who invented it it's it's really weird and to see how they are able to i mean just just saying the acronyms of IRS or FBI really has <laughs> a, i mean seriously it has a huge effect on people they're scared to death of these things. That lines up perfectly with another post that was posted by IC Freely about the Cold War in a reference to none dare call it conspiracy by Gary Allen and Larry Abraham in 1971 when they talk about communism and capitalism as two – it's like a finance capitalism used as the anvil and com- communism used as the hammer to conquer the world – um, in essence, from the same like New York, London, and Paris culture, and it's all about how like people would be de- deliberately thrown into this artificial um, 
conflict, which which isn't even a conflict at all. It's just like you know the left hand warning you about the right hand. <laughs> Ace, if I may, um, I'm just very curious about this one person you say. And when you yeah. say manages a psyop, do you do you think that there's no nothing in print in the local papers or the local television or radio stations or whatever that gets distributed? Uh, to the public without some sort of either tacit or explicit approval of this particular agent? Oh, I don't know that it would even have to be directly from from him. But, um, yeah, he's undoubtedly a key, a very key gatekeeper here. But, no, I think the, I think the local media, they're just simply a mouthpiece for the government and I mean, I think it all comes down from the top at the DOD, and they just have a couple of managers here. Yes. They just manage everybody in town through fear, and they I mean, they just refer to them as the FBI. And people believe that, you know, they've got, like, armies of FBI agents that are could descend on your house at any moment. Um, well, because we're civilians, we're, we're, we're not part of the, quote, legitimate, unquote, world. You know, the legitimate world is the world which has you know, bullied everyone else into see, seeing them as some kind of uh, important being. Super, super force or something. Yeah, yeah. Like, again, like the, the high military intelligence circles who are probably all aware of, you know, what's going on uh, have been interviewed in this, in this uh, none dare call it conspiracy book. And they say that um, one of these men who the the authors interviewed was a Norman Dodd, and they headed the Reese Committee's investigation of tax-free foundations. So, you know, that means people saying, yeah, we don't have to pay taxes. It's bullshit. It's nonsense. It's like saying I don't have a right to live unless I give you money, you know. Mm-hmm. And But Mr. Dodd was saying, according to the interview – that it's permissible to investigate like radical bomb throwers in the streets, but when you begin to trace their activities back to their origins and it goes to the, quote, legitimate world, unquote, then the political iron curtain slams down. That's just like you were saying, you know, like we are allowed to poke at each other and throw each other into the meat grinder and this legal system, but if it if the culprit goes back to that upper level, the, the DOD or the or any other um, defense intelligence agency, it just stops. The, the the investigation will never go any further from that. No, absolutely not. They either they either don't understand anything about it, or they've realized that they're not supposed to understand anything about it because they go to training seminars by the feds. But if the feds aren't teaching them about it, and then they come across it in their field work, then they figure out they weren't supposed to know about it. So then they just pretend they don't know about it. Mm. Oh, it's just oh my gosh! It, it, it's fear. It's fear. It, the the the, the people at the lower tiers of this of the system who run it against everyone else, they too are afraid. They're afraid of their bosses. Yep, all the way up, and all it takes is one fed, and they will. I mean, people will run around the courthouse yelling that the feds are coming. The feds are coming. I mean, it's like, <sighs> I mean. Or, oh my gosh, this is so big. This Maybe this is being used to fund ISIS. Or, and I'm like, oh, brother. I mean, seriously? It got you scared of the FBI and now ISIS? 
Well, yeah, that's actually someone says right here in the thread <laughs> in analyzing this so-called global conquest of communism, which nobody can agree what it is, but everyone's everyone knows it's somehow bad. Um, they say, oh, that's so apt. You can almost swap communism for ISIS. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. It's the same old boogeyman in a way. It's just a different brand. Yeah, and so you got to figure out at the local level, okay, so, you know, even the cops on the street, they've got, you know, they, they think that the blacks are really suspicious of them, and they are because of the media, and so they're they're afraid of blacks. And then, but what, they're also afraid of, probably most of them are afraid of media because they think that the media, I think the average street cop thinks the media is legit. And then whenever they get mentioned, something like an FBI agent, I mean, they just tuck tail and turn. So they can be easily managed in big herds with one person. It doesn't take all that much. It's, it's shocking, actually, how little is needed to manage all of them. Well, and then the other thing to me was that I didn't understand, like, people say the Cold War was some kind of war. But what I never understood was what actually happened. There weren't really events of the Cold War that I can understand, except for maybe um, the Berlin Wall coming down, like, in the European date of 9-11. Big, big. <laughs> right. Like, 9-11-1989 or something. Like, no, that, November 9th, yeah. But, but Khrushchev and the Bay of Pigs and missiles and all, all that. Oh right, but I mean, but then I think that's well, just a carryover. For, that's just a carryover from the Kennedy thing, wasn't it? Like, but yeah, that was part of the Cold War. That was really the the kickoff whole thing. The idea that we would have nuclear missiles in Cuba, right yeah. next to us, set to you know within easy reach. I, I see. Think, I think that the official Still narrative would be that that was sort of the height of the Cold War. Okay, okay, so that makes sense. So the event of the Cold War was a slow build-up to something, and then they were like, well, shit, we got to have something. Well, let's have this Cuban thing happen. So then they, like, pushed this drama with, you know, even though probably Castro and Kennedy are probably, like, you know, banging the same prostitutes, and then they have this big drama about, you know, what what is going on with some proximity of a fictional weapon and then and then there and then what was the space race tied up in that for i was about to say don't forget the space race so that so that must have been just like well we're going to defeat the russians by inspiring everyone and like so then but that was so weird too because then again once again you had the same thing where the russians are like okay now we're totally under your heel so we'll not only copy your space program we'll copy the uh the designs of the shuttlecraft. <laughs> but the, the space race was also an extension of the Cold War. Because yeah. Sputnik, Sputnik had the bomb, right? And that was yeah, how we got yeah. into orbit. Right. Was, so the uh, Russians were allowed to, or were written as the ones who were going to have the first, like, satellite, yeah. right? And yeah, that, that first that first CBS News report where they announced that the Russians have, an, have launched Sputnik and... Um, they now have a satellite whizzing over the United States every 90 minutes or whatever. And so they're, I don't know if they actually say it or they just imply it, but basically they're now at the point where they can, you know, drop them, drop them nuke on us at any time they want out of the blue. And so we, the idea is, of course, we need to beat them to space as if at some kind of race. I don't know. And That's so as if that would serve any kind of purpose. But yeah, I until guess, that point, 
Yeah, it was. They had to be delivered by planes. All right. In the, in the context of uh, fear-stricken state and everyone else around you is hysterical, then I suppose you all just sort of throw your wallets at them. And that makes total that ties completely well with satellite discussions, we've, which we've been having the last few episodes, because the satellite thing is mysteriously impotent. It's kind of like a, a weird marketing thing that is almost like a way for them to shut down the old Cold War story slowly by just having it be this non-issue that fades into kind of a fantasy world. Like, oh, we got over that Cold War thing. Now it's just, you know, TV. Another thing thing that's really cool about it from their perspective has got to be, of course, Apollo 11 and and all the debate over moon landing stuff. Because once you get arguing too much over the moon landing, of course, you've already skipped satellites. Yeah, and, and you've given at that point. And you've skipped over the whole point that Russia and America have always been yep. imperial yep. partners, partners yep. in taking over the rest of the world. So so you can cover up you can cover up the biggest fattest lie in the room by a stupid moon landing story. Oh Several of them. Um because you get people arguing over the wrong thing as usual. Yeah. But the satellites now, though, I think are very important in the fact they have cameras and they can keep an eye on you no matter where you are at any time. There's no way to run. There's no way you can hide because and this is very integral to all movies and television and drama and and spy shows and everything. It's just it's almost constant. Yeah. They tune the satellites and they turn the satellites and they zoom the cameras in and it catch the guy running out of Alex Jones wouldn't be able to do his thing if it weren't for all the fear over all the special technology and the satellites and their ability to, you know, monitor and watch and observe and basically do anything they want to any time they want. So I, I think that the satellite story really got buried by the Apollo stories. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty significant thing to cover up with a silly story. Yeah. And I mean, it's odd too because what, what exactly are we supposed to be afraid that the Russians will do differently from us? Um, the idea, <laughs> I, the idea, I guess, is that when they take over, you know, all the wealth will be distributed and in an unfair way, you know. And that's another funny thing that there's a weird kind of mindfuck going on with with this threat of communism. You know, ostensibly, if you talk to somebody who isn't brainwashed in this idea that yeah the rich people have to be rich so that i can get a little trickle down most people will be like oh yeah like there's a bunch of greedy people that have way too much way too many resources way too much power way too much money but that entire discussion is completely sidetracked when you're terrified that something associated abstractly with that belief is going to take over and it's going to be awful. It's just going to be the worst thing ever. So not only are we like terrified of of rich people losing their money, you know, right? We're 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 also terrified that someone would even suggest the possibility of like having a different system.
There's much more to it than that, though, in reality. And and part of it was, now, if you remember the Iron Curtain, there was no escape. And, and 1984 was basically sort of a, a blueprint for what the future of a communist society would look like. With North. But, no, I was saying, you know, and, and this is something that I remember from my childhood about the fear and the threats of communism is... So America had this idea, the red, white, and blue is a free country, the land of the free, right? You could, you could come here, you could make it, you could, you were free to work and do what you wanted and, you know, the sky was the limit. Anybody could be president and all this sort of thing. But we had the Iron Curtain in Russia and there was no escape. People couldn't leave and they were assigned to their jobs. Eventually they, they might have, uh, arranged marriages more or less. They couldn't marry outside of their class. They had, there's, if you were an athlete, that's all you could be if you were working in a factory. You you were assigned there for life. All this and and if you look at things here, if you go back to the education system of the U.S. with Frederick Taylor and Taylorism, are you familiar with the scientific management of Taylorism? How 
he wrote books on how if you were, you know, a, a dirt shovel or whatever, there was a scientific way that you could handle the shovel and position your body or whatever to maximize how many shovelfuls of dirt you could do per hour. And, and that could be extended to every particular job everywhere. And there was a scientific way to do everything to maximize productivity. There were so many ridiculous things. There were people whose jobs it was to tell the leader of the, you know, of the Soviet bloc, like, you know, this is how many barrels of oysters we got or something like, you know, whatever resource it was. And then the next person on, or, and the other person would say, no, you know, we've done the calculation and you're supposed to have this many, you know, you are like 30 barrels short. And they're like, well, unfortunately, you know, that is the case, you know, and there, and the other person will be like, no, that's not the case because we've done the calculation and if you don't have this number that we've perfectly calculated, you know, from this top position, then someone is going to have to pay for it because that means someone is stealing or something, you know. And the people in the bottom could have totally been just totally honest and been just producing as much as they possibly could. But because of the way it was organized, there someone had to atone for this, like, bizarre – it was like a – it's like a Star Trek premise, you know, like, oh, well – People have to die now because we've calculated this bomb hit hit that virtual city. So now everyone walk into the suicide machine, you know, and it was just like just absolutely weirdest things happening but, there. But, but Taylor is American, right? And Taylorism, that's an American phenomenon. Horace Mann. And I mean, if you listen to the John Taylor Gatto stuff, he covers that pretty well in this. And, and it's I mean, it's extended even to today. It's they manage it through the uh, standardized testing. They've got prep schools. So there's a huge stratification in our society about where people are supposed to end up and what their function, you know, what level of strata of the economy they're supposed to live and Definitely. function on basically through their entire life. They're tracked through their grades. Their yes, and not to bring it back to race. I really don't need to bring it back there, but I just thought, you know, also that. I mean, a softer system than communism but it's still the same type of scientific management of society where you've got a particular strata of elites that are going to manage the next strata down and everything. It's a, definitely a, a pyramid. You know? Yeah, now it's more – it's like almost the same thing, but it's more invisible. It's it's kind of like we're going to manage you through manipulating your emotions with media psyops, and you will believe that you need the legislation that we have come up with to solve this fake story, you know. I mean, and you can Google 10 planks, and what you'll come up with is the 10 planks of the Communist Manifesto. Yeah, let's do it. Let's look that up. Okay, hold on. 10 planks of communism. I think 10 planks will get you there. Communist Manifesto 10 planks. Okay, yeah, let's see. What was this threat? Abolition of private property and the application of all rents of land to public purposes. Americans do these with actions such as the 14th Amendment and various zoning, school and property taxes. And heavy, domain. Two, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Americans know this as misapplication of the 16th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, 1913, paying your fair share, quote-unquote. Three, abolition of all rights of inheritance. Americans call it federal and state estate tax, 1916, or reformed probate laws and limited inheritance via arbitrary inheritance tax statutes. Four, confiscation of the property of all emigrants and rebels. Americans call it government seizures, tax liens, public law, executive orders, and such. 
the Drugs imprisonment. forfeitures, probably. Terrorists, you know, whatever. Five, centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. Gee, well, that would be exactly describing the Federal Reserve. Six, centralization of the means of communications and transportation in the hands of the state. Americans call it the FCC, yep, which is hand-in-hand with the Department of Defense, who, like, regulates our bandwidth. That also heavily ties in with the satellite discussion. The Federal Aviation Administration, on and on and on. Seven, extension of factors and instruments of production owned by the state, the bringing into cultivation of wastelands, and the improvement of the soil generally in accordance with the common plan. Environmental regulation, bailout of GM, bailout of the banks. Department of Agriculture, uh, corporate capacity. That's that, That'd be interesting to look up because I definitely agree with, for example, improvement of soil, but not not from a top-down centralized government. You know, like that's just something that we should do. Well, it, it's so counterintuitive because if anybody knows more about how they're going to manage their soil, it's going to be the farmer. Yeah. You know, he's going to know how to do it. It's not going to be a government bureaucrat. Exactly. It's be, not going to be like the, the communist thing, like, oh, we've calculated you have to have this yeah. many things. You know, like, no, that's not how it works. You know, there's seasons, there's there's weather changes. Oh, God. It's the guy with the skin in the game. He's going to manage it best. That's the salt of the earth, as we say, yeah. Eight, equal liability of all to labor, establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. Americans call the first part minimum wage and slave labor like dealing with our most favored nation trade partner, communist China. We see it in practice via the Social Security. Oh, my gosh. Whoa. Yeah, wait. We, all our manufacturing is now in China. <laughs> wait a minute. And they're supposed to be the enemy? Or Wait, hold on. Nine, combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries, gradual abolition of the distinction between town and country. Oh, that sounds gross. Agenda 21, if you're familiar with that. Uh, yes. They call it uh, mixed-use facilities. Um, they call it here... They call it here, Americans pl- call it the Planning Reorganization Act of 1949 for zoning, super corporate farms, um, and forced relocations and forced sterilization programs. Man, you know, those forced sterilization programs, that would be kind of like Walgreens constantly asking you to get your shot. And everyone, anytime you enter someplace official, asking you, did you get your shot yet? Did you get your immunization? You know, like, I'm not sure if that's exactly forced, but it's definitely pressured. Well, there there was a period where there, there were forced sterilizations here for the so-called mentally disabled. And, of course, if you look at Margaret Sanger and, and her relationship to Planned Parenthood and the, how those organizations seem to crop up in poor ethnic neighborhoods where abortion is encouraged. Not that I want to get involved in that Ooh, yeah. chicken and egg That's debate. That's a pickle hot topic right there. But yeah, yeah anyway, the <laughs> point, the larger point, of course, is we're seeing all these points um, initiated, like I guess you say in a softer way here too. And like 10, free education for all children in public schools, abolition of children's factory labor, in its present form, I get. <laughs> Does that mean that there is like an acceptable use of children for factory labor? Combination of education with industrial production. Whoa! I'd say like our schools are pretty much training us to be industrialized cogs for sure. So, yeah, it's pretty odd how how these planks of the Communist Manifesto, I guess, could be interpreted as pretty much what's going on in every empire. 
It's just, it's and the. It's, it's so funny that we've been fighting all this stuff for a hundred. We, and I'm not saying we, but. Yeah. On pay, all the wars have been against all of this sort of thing for like a hundred years of World War One, fascism, communism, whatever, everything that's happened. And it's. Bomb Cambodia for no reason other than we fear they might be us. Yeah. It's, it's, it's insane when you think about it. It is. It's insanity. That, that is what the Cold War is. It's like. Let's publicize, promote, and encourage insanity on a large scale. It's awful. What the heck? Like, it might be considered one of the biggest crimes against humanity is this misuse of media. But who will prosecute this? Not <laughs> it, well, yeah, but there's no law system. There's no. I mean, yeah, that's what I took away from talking to Ace tonight is that the the law system is sort of secondary to any potential justice or yeah. anything that may happen. It's all about personality and being, I mean, I, I, I'm glad he has, he's savvy enough to understand that, you know, it's his uh, tools are to be in the head of the prosecutors and the judge and make sure that he connects with them in a personal way that allows his clients to get lenient. Yeah. Because if he were to just go strictly with the application of the law and say, well, we've got a precedent here in this book and it says this. But that's another thing that I, I, he didn't get into the Mark Stevens, but he always points out that there's, I think, three elements to a cause of action. And you have to prove jurisdiction. There has to be an injured party and, and some other thing. And, and if you're, it's a crime against the state, there's no injured party jurisdiction they have no evidence whatsoever and this is really hard for me to get my head around and it, because it's just so it's so counter to everything we imagine as far as the way that we live and breathe in this thing called the state or the town. Mm. but there none of these cities counties states or they have no evidence whatsoever to prove that they have jurisdiction all they have is force yeah, I mean the That's the only it. the only evidence they have is usually when when you actually get to that question, when you actually finally wear it down to like what is your jurisdiction, it's usually like well we're right and you're wrong. And or something as weird as the doctrine of discovery where they say Texas and Florida exist because you know Christians came to say we're superior, you're you're savage primitive people and not in a good way. And it's like yep. What the heck? Like, but but the, the Mark Stevens thing, and this is where I kind of wanted to get a little bit into the PR because how he challenges the system is he forces them to either admit in public that they do not have jurisdiction <laughs> and take all the bad PR that's going to go along with admitting that it's a house of cards, or they dismiss the case. Uh, and what happens a lot of time is that they'll clear the courtroom, they'll they'll reassign the person till their last, till the courtroom is empty, so, so they can do some double talk or something. But it, but a lot of times they'll just dismiss it. They won't allow the conversation to go any further because they know they can't produce. Or they'll say, "Well, that's a frivolous argument." And he's like, "I'm not making an argument. I'm asking you to show me proof of jurisdiction, which can only be a signature." on an agreement between two parties with a meeting of the minds. And a lot of people will say it's a wet inks and we do not have that. So the whole thing is a house of cards. Yeah. And what, and what we've brought the conversation back down to thanks to uh, you and ACE today is kind of different 
values, uh, uh, different ways of defining sovereignty or, well, sovereignty is a problematic word for some people. The right to exist, the right to just be, the right to live on this world as a free being that, that creation endows us with, um, and this ongoing discussion. And it seems like sometimes this whole silly drama and these major dramas that are painted up for us are merely ways of forcing in any way possible that that discussion out the window so that you can be like dehumanized or devalued or in some way that that we don't get that we don't we don't have that discussion it's almost like we're too embarrassed to have that discussion because then we'd have to admit that oh yeah actually you know we do make make mistakes and maybe this state top-down government system isn't you know the best way to organize humanity at all well it depends on who you know who Hui Bono, right? Who, who's been? I mean, obviously, it's it's the way it's organized is good for some. Yes, that's right. And it's, I think that there is almost like this value war between people who are like, well, what if it benefits nature? What if it benefits trees? Like, who's who's to? I'm sorry to get frivolous if this is a frivolous discussion, like as the courts would maybe say. But like, who's the voice of those without a voice in our legal system? Or in any like language that <laughs> I'm sorry if that sounds uh, too new agey, but I, I just that's what it comes down to for me is then why aren't we having these discussions? Well, we are, and that that's amazing. I think, and it's great, and I'm I'm so thankful that we have the opportunity to do this, and technology has allowed us to do this. So me too. Yeah, there's a big uh, two thumbs up for that. As far as the power structure goes, it seems like they put a lot of effort and energy into getting this one one thing that'll make it. I'm going to use this terminology. We we could look it up, but if you look up the term voluntary compliance, it'll just make your head explode. Uh. It's so it's so hilarious to see how they define that terminology in ways that it can't. It, it's basically you're forced to do this, but it's voluntary. But yeah. they do want they do want your compliance. They want they your want, consent, but they, they will interpret consent. it any way that they can. But they put a lot of effort and energy through media and through education and and whatever, whether religion, probably a bunch of other things, culture, entertainment, and to having people comply without resisting. Ugh, and then when when it gets past that, they have the court system to give it a veneer of sort of legitimacy, right? And then way down at the bottom of all that stuff, they have force that they'll resort to when everything else fails, which I think is a, a tool in and of itself would be horribly ineffective. It, you know, it would decimate productivity. It would, you know, they could never institute the type of system that they want to benefit themselves with. With force alone, they're they're hugely reliant on the, the propaganda apparatus. Uh, let's hope they don't get that thing where everyone's microchipped and the microchips actually succeed at like controlling our emotions, <laughs> like into like a worldwide slavery. That would be probably pretty close to like f- force coercion on some. Well, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how far away from we, that we actually are. 
Because when I talk to people, and I'm fairly, and I, I bring this stuff up to some people, and a lot of people think I'm just insane and ridiculous. Or, but, but when they talk to me, I can tell that all that they're doing is taking information they hear or see in the media, and just repeating it. Yeah. And and our education system is that way too. That's what we're taught to do. We take in information in the history books and then we regurgitate it for a standardized test and show that we were capable of retaining that and repeating it. And so I just am really curious about how many people are out there analyzing and parsing information for themselves and coming up with their own thoughts about things and I I'm not seeing a lot of it. I'll tell you that. This has been a really good talk, uh, a very nice episode. Thank you for being here, and uh, let's keep it real together. Sounds great, Hoyt. Thanks so much. It was a joy to talk to you, man. Likewise. The uh, honors and privilege, privilege is all mine. Thanks, Farce Value. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye. Industry, Bye. labor, science, and the military combined their efforts to build the first atomic bomb. But all are within man's power subject to his command. On man's wisdom, on his firmness in the use of that power, depends now the future of his children and his children's children in the new world of the atomic age. Mm-hmm.